3: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I am Dr. Mike Brazier, and I'm going to be your host on this episode. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that we've discussed uh, every year since we've been doing this podcast, uh, Western drought. It's like the annual update on the conditions out there, not necessarily in a good way. But joining me, or the right guest to discuss this, is Jeff McCreary, the Director of Operations for the Western Region. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. And Dr. Mark Petrie, our Director of Conservation Planning in the Western Region. Mark, great to have you back as well.
4: Glad to be here, Mike.
3: You know, guys, I was going back uh, in preparation for this and looking at the number of episodes that we've done on this topic, and it starts all the way back on episodes 177 and 179. And I actually might have even gone back farther than that. But that was the that was the, the start of like a deep dive into some of the issues there. Those three episodes were specific to the Klamath Basin and all the issues that have unfolded through time to, to sort of affect what's going on there. Uh, since then... The drought that was kind of in place at that time, it has intensified, and that caused us to begin to update people on the status of the drought in other parts of the western U.S., Intermountain West, California, Central Valley. We had uh, episode 290, where we talked again about the Klamath, and then episodes 354 and 360, where I think they were focused primarily on drought in the Central Valley. Uh, those were last year. So I encourage people to go back and listen to those if you want a bit more of the the history some aspects of this, but uh, this is a time of year as we approach the hunting season where we want to give an update on what we know about the drought, what its impacts have been over the course of spring and summer with regard to production, what uh, and, and other things that are relevant to waterfowl, and then how things are shaping up in a number of ways as we get into fall, uh, because it's certainly important for waterfowl and waterfowl hunters. So, uh, appreciate you guys joining us, joining us here for that. And I guess, Jeff, I'm going to throw this first question to you, and you can toss it to Mark if you want him to, to chime in on any specific uh, element, but big picture kind of status of the drought. Uh, and, and I'm talking like, are we still like extreme drought? How far is that extreme drought? How's, what's it look like in the, in California, Oregon, Washington, Utah, et cetera, just kind of paint that picture for our listeners.
1: Yeah, Mike, I'm looking at the U.S. drought monitor webpage right now and the uh, information was released today and it's showing severe drought, it's showing extreme drought, and it's showing even exceptional drought in all of the westernmost states, except Washington. Uh, Washington, western Washington, and uh, northwestern Oregon actually had almost too much rain this year, ironically. But the rest of us in southern Oregon, California, Nevada, Utah in particular, southern Idaho, uh, we're all in severe drought. And, you know, when I look back at the map from last year, what's really uh, evident is that this drought is not just the far west anymore in fact, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, almost all of Texas are having the same conditions: severe to extreme drought. So this is this has become much more of a, an entire western half of the country drought than it has just the far west.
3: Yeah, and I've kind of kept track of things throughout the year, and it's it's one of those deals where you hear. You, you hear these superlatives attached to the conditions of the of the drought, like uh, uh, Great Salt Lake, you tell me if this actually materialized. It's another one of those years where they expected the water levels to decline to the lowest point on record. Did we hit that or have we hit it yet?
1: Uh, I think we're hitting it every day. In fact, the projections for Great Salt Lake was that, that it was going to lose two feet elevation this year and when uh, a terminal water body like the great salt lake loses water that means that water becomes saltier and saltier and the food that's in the lake brine shrimp that becomes less habitual or or available for habitat for waterfowl because they just can't survive the salty conditions so certainly record-breaking everywhere around klamath basin the lower klamath and tule lake national wildlife refuges they are dry right now First time ever. And Central Valley, record drought, uh, record devastation to the to the rice industry this year because of the drought. Uh, it, it's just bad all over.
3: Yeah, Jeff, you touched on the three things that came to mind with regard to rice production, drying of the Klamath Basin refuges, and then, of course, the the Great Salt Lake. One thing that I will do here is put a timestamp on this. We were recording it on September 1st. And anytime we're dealing with, with weather conditions, drought conditions, they will change through time as we go forward one way or another. And so I just kind of always like to put that timestamp stamp on it for people that may be listening to this farther into the future. This is where we are at this point in time. And, and so I, I want to... It, we're gonna kinda of jump around to these different parts of the region of the Western region and talk about some of what has unfolded this summer. Mark, I guess I wanna to go to you and let's talk about the Central Valley. You are you're the person, you're our expert on rice, rice production, waterfowl energetics, all that type of stuff out west. And I know you've been keeping a close eye along with your partners on rice production this year. It's a water it's it's a it's a crop that requires requires water. Uh, and, and there are aspects of that during the growing season, as well as the, the wintering or, or during winter that are kind of relevant to that crop. But give us an update on on how that has all shaped up. How have the water restrictions, the drought in the Central Valley affected rice production?
4: Well, Mike, my, my understanding is, you know, in a normal water year, uh, we see about maybe, you know, 525,000 acres, 540,000 acres of rice planted. Um, uh, my understanding is we only probably have around two hundred and ten thousand acres planted at this at this point, so you know well over a fifty percent decline so to put that in a waterfowl perspective um rice provides over half of the food available to ducks and geese in the central valley, so you know a good chunk of that will be missing this year obviously um winter flooded rice which is which is especially important and and that involves uh, rice producers flooding their fields after after harvest. Typically, we see about 300,000, 325,000 acres of that kind of habitat. We expect probably less than 50,000 acres of winter-flooded rice this year. And so that's going to be especially hard on ducks, um, and it's going to be hard on hunters too. Uh, about 30% of all California hunters get most of their hunting opportunity out of uh, leased rice fields, uh, and most of that habitat won't be available. So those hunting opportunities, at least right now, are not going to be available this fall.
3: You know, Mark, we've We've been through this before. This is something you and I have talked about a number of times, and I I forget the year, whether it was 2014 or 2015, we were going into it and had a real severe drought, and there was a a precipitation, abundant precipitation event maybe in January that changed the landscape substantially. We also saw the same thing last year as we approached the hunting season. I think it may have been opening weekend when uh, one of those atmospheric rivers came in and and dumped a lot of rain in the Central Valley. But as you pointed out astutely a little while ago before we started recording, that can't be a strategy for, for dealing with this in terms of waiting on timely rain to fall and kind of change those conditions during the winter. But that is possible. It is possible that we could see that, but that's not a strategy right now. We're kind of painting the picture and, and what we see is is not good for all of those uh, reasons that you mentioned there. The one thing that that I guess we learned when we were out there visiting a few weeks ago is that that the have and have nots in terms of water from a sort of geographic perspective is is not the same uh, there in the, in the Central Valley. Or I guess what I'm trying to say is that the, the big pattern that you pointed out to us is there are some water districts that are in worse shape than the others. I think it was the, uh, remind me of that, which of those, which portions of that Central Valley are in Uh, I guess, more limited supplies right now?
4: Sure. Well, rice growers west of the Sacramento River rely on Shasta River, sorry, Shasta Dam water. And essentially, there's no water coming out of Shasta Dam for rice production this year, very little of it. East of the Sacramento River, the producers are in a little bit better shape. And there's, there's a much higher percentage of the traditional rice being grown there this year. So there is kind of a there's a distinction um, between between the west and east side of the Sacramento River in terms of how good or how bad things are and that'll be reflected too in, in the uh, the water that's available for wetlands
3: we're probably going going to come back to a bit of that discussion in the Central Valley as we go forward but but for now I want to I want to stick with the conversation about the way this drought is affecting some of the landowners and some of the other land uses that are important out there. And Jeff, I want to I want to direct this to you. And we're going to go up to the Klamath, and there has been some there there have been some news items come out here lately about. And I don't know if it's reached lawsuit status yet or what the deal is. But uh, talk a little about that in terms of how this drought has affected some of the most imp- more important crops, maybe ranching. I, I forget exactly where that falls. Uh, in terms of its um, reliance on, on irrigation water this time of year, but what are some of the other land uses that are affected by the drought in that landscape?
1: Well, the climate basin Mike is part of a larger landscape that we call sonic. And that stands for Southern Oregon, Northeast California. And within that region, there's essentially two kinds of agriculture uh, in general. There's a outside of the climate there. It's largely, ranching with flood irrigated pastures and and haylands and within the klamath basin there's the klamath irrigation project and within uh within that landscape there's a there's a variety of different crops that are produced grains horseradish if you like tule lake horseradish that's where it comes from uh potatoes if you're an in-and-out burger uh aficionado your potatoes from uh for in and out come from the Klamath Basin. If you like mint gum, the flavoring for that mint gum comes from the mint grown in the Klamath Basin. And all of these areas are suffering from the drought. Some more in particular. And I think there's two, uh, there's a there's a notable point here, I think, to make is that in some cases. The drought is based on the particular watershed that you're in. And I think as Mark was talking about, the watershed that is served from uh, Lake Shasta is in severe drought, but the watershed that is served from Lake Oroville in the Central Valley is not in a drought. In fact, it had, it has almost enough water to help. Uh, flood winter rice this year in the Klamath basin it's also in the sonic area it's also based on what watershed you're in and the Klamath watershed of course has an endangered species component endangered fish uh, both salmon and suckers that are uh, driving a lot of the decision making or most of the decision making about how water is allocated and of course um, one A quote that I love to say, and unfortunately, it's water flows where it's legally mandated to flow. And in this case, the legalese says it flows to the Endangered Species Act and the fish in the river. Secondarily, uh, there's a contract for the irrigators and the Klamath Project, and water will flow uh, to the irrigation districts after that. And then whatever's left flows to the wildlife refuges. So with most of the water being of the scarce water being used for supporting endangered species, that leaves both the uh, irrigation districts and the refuges in the Klamath basin area high and dry this year.
3: Yeah, that was the uh, th- that was the one of the issues. That I guess I was I was thinking about there. There was a recent, and maybe I'm guessing it's still ongoing um, debate decision about kind of cutting off some of that late summer irrigation water. Is it uh, we and we don't have to get into any of the details on that, but is that still? that that kind of debate, that contention still ongoing?
1: Yeah, and for the Klamath Basin, there is no more water. They, in fact, they've shut everything down, uh, and the Tule Lake National Wildlife Refuge and Lower Klamath Refuges are closed for hunting this year because they have zero water in them. The Upper Klamath Lake up on uh, Upper Lake and the Upper Klamath National Wildlife Refuge is open to hunting, but those two lower refuges, they're 100% closed this year because they are bone dry for the first time Maybe ever.
3: Yeah, I think I saw some report of that, and it's pretty startling to see that. You know, a lot of these these long term effects, these these impacts, these um, limited the consequences of limited water, are and all the different uses and and the the competition for that water. It's all coming home to roost in some pretty uh, pretty stark ways. We're seeing that in a number of places this year. Uh, I want to one of those places maybe, and I don't know how much of a handle we're going to have on this, but Mark, I want to throw this question to you. I want to talk about breeding waterfowl because a lot of what we've talked about, I guess, thus far has sort of centered around what's to come, the implications of limited water to come uh, here for fall and winter. Let's go back into the spring and summer and Western states produce a lot of local ducks that are pretty darn important for hunters out there in those states. Talk about, about that a bit and and kind of what do we what do we know or what do we think has happened this breeding season with regard to production out of those uh, those local areas
4: well, mike you're right local production is important to many hunters in the western states um california particularly so and the california breeding surveys were among the lowest on record which you know was really no surprise given given the drought and given the drought last year so mallard populations local mallard populations in particular that breed in the central valley um, are at really low numbers right now when you get into um oregon and washington and most of that production comes from the eastern parts of those two states um where again it is dry and uh, although i have not seen the survey results for those two states i'm pretty certain that they're they're below average too so those are three areas of really local production in the pacific flyway when you get north of there uh when you get into Alberta and Alaska, which are kind of two of the major producers of birds that hunters see. Alberta, of course, um, did not fare well this year. It's in drought as well. Um, Alaska, to my understanding, uh, the breeding pair surveys in Alaska were pretty encouraging. It looked like birds uh, were actually a, Above average in terms of the number counted. So that's kind of a bright spot. And that's important because Alaska has really, really become very important to hunters in the Pacific Flyway. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but you're you're entirely correct local production, not surprisingly, will be very depressed this year.
3: Mark, we've talked a fair bit about that breeding population survey here over the past couple of weeks. And, and it occurred to us, yeah, we can cite that good production, or at least expected good production in Alaska and healthy breeding population up there. And while that bodes well for Pacific Flyway hunters, certainly, and you get into some of these drought-stricken areas, our comment has always been that one of the biggest concerns or the biggest concern for uh, for waterfowl and waterfowl hunters in, that, in, in those portions of the Pacific Flyway this year is going to be places to hunt and places for the birds to go. And you talked about that with respect to the, the Central Valley. Uh, it's obviously going to be the case with uh, with those two refuges in uh, in the Klamath Basin. And the other kind of component to this, we've We talked about low water levels in the Great Salt Lake. That's going to have some effects on availability of of wetlands for waterfowl in that basin. We talked about that a bit last year. Uh, The other component of this is some of those private duck clubs and their ability to get water. Uh, The other is going to be public areas, uh, national wildlife refuges and wildlife management areas. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Mark, I'll start with you. What have you heard about water availability for some of those uh, duck clubs in the Central Valley or anywhere else that you might know
4: of? Well, I'll start with public wetlands in the Central Valley, Mike. Um, there's there's a bit of a difference between the, the Sacramento Valley, which is the northern half of the Central Valley, and the San Joaquin Valley, which is uh, the southern half of the Valley. And My understanding is the water picture is a little better in the San Joaquin Valley than it is in the Sac Valley. Um, I think there's going to be more information coming out on that here in the next few days, but um, certainly in the Sacramento River Valley many of those public wetlands are not going to get the water they usually do and I think that's going to probably result in some hunting restrictions whether that's you know a reduction in the size of the Hunt area that's available, or perhaps even later openings. Uh, that's I think going to become clear here in the next couple of weeks. But there's definitely going to be a reduction in hunting opportunity on public lands um, in the Central Valley as a whole. I think, but it'll be particularly pronounced in the Sac Valley at least early, unless we get some of those big rains that you talked about early. From a duck club standpoint, I think that's more of a probably a mixed bag. Certainly, again, if you're if you're if a duck club is west of the Sacramento River, um, their water supplies are probably in a little more rough shape than if you're on the east side of the Sac River, uh, which is the same disparity we're seeing for rice growers. So I think with duck clubs, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, But overall, hunting opportunities, whether they're on winter-flooded rice, whether they're on public wetlands, and on some duck clubs, at least early in the season, will be reduced compared to a normal year.
3: Guys, I think we're going to take a break right here. We're about midway through this episode, and we're going to come back. We will continue this discussion and wrap it up with some talks about uh, what Ducks Unlimited is trying to do to help out in this situation. Stay with us, guys.
0: You and your dog are a team.
3: Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Jeff McCreary and Mark Petrie, and we are continuing our discussion about the Western Drought. And Mark, I want to come back to you and and revisit this idea. Talk a little more about how the drought is likely to affect hunter opportunities. We'll get to a little bit of the discussion about likely impacts on birds later on. But you've you've talked in the in, in the past about the importance of the importance of rice lands to a lot of the hunters. You've also talked about the importance of a lot of the public lands to to hunters. I've read somewhere that there may be some delayed openings for some of those public areas. Uh, we don't have the specifics on that, but, but I'm also kind of wondering, whenever we think about the decline in that winter-flooded rice, what's, what's that going to do? Like, How are hunters going to respond? What's the likely landscape of hunting opportunity going to turn into there?
4: Well, Mike, this is a little bit of speculation on my part, but um, our understanding is about a third of the hunters in California rely on rice for most of their hunting opportunities. Whether they're hunting, whether they're hunting their own farm or a relative's farm, or they're leasing, they're leasing a rice field. About a third of all hunters—that's pretty much where they spend most of the hunting season—with with winter flooded rice, essentially, you know, ten percent of what it typically is or will be. Um, those hunting op- those hunting opportunities most of them will evaporate essentially at least in the short term unless we get uh, we get some you know fall rains. My guess is a lot of those folks who usually hunt rice fields will gravitate to the public areas and the public areas are there's already a lot of demand on public hunting areas in California even in a normal water year and with the drought and the reduced hunting opportunities that we expect to occur on public lands um, those folks who mostly hunt rice fields, We'll find, I think, that that's that's going to be a difficult pill to swallow too, because there's just not going to be a ton of opportunities on public land to kind of kind of handle that overflow, if you will. So, um, at least in at least in early fall, I think um, hunting opportunities are going to be limited for for that
3: crowd. Mark, with regard to potential delayed openings or closures, hunting closures for any of those national wildlife refuges or WMAs, what's the, what do people need to know? Is it one of those situations where they just have to check with the appropriate uh, agency, the Fish and Wildlife Service or uh, California Fish and Game? Is that what, I'm assuming that they're putting out a lot of updated information on the status of those uh, public areas.
4: Yes, obviously, I would encourage folks to check their websites. My guess is, Mike, you know there'll be differences between state and federal areas in terms of delayed openings or limited hunting opportunities, but there'll also be differences among individual refuges, whether they're state or federal, um, because the water picture is not uniform across all those publicly managed areas. So again, encourage folks to, to find out the specifics about the, the the public lands that they would want to hunt, because it'll be it'll be a varied picture.
3: And, Mark, I guess the last thing that I want to talk to you about before – may come back to you here towards the end, but the one big thing that I want to talk to you about before I go to Jeff and talk about some of what Ducks Unlimited is doing is like – our concern, what concern do we have for the birds and how they will be affected? And do we know anything from any, any past experiences with drought like this? If we've had any experiences like this? Uh, and then is, what's, what's Ducks Unlimited doing if we don't know anything? What are we doing to try to figure all that out?
4: Good questions. Well, Mike, my, my guess is what's going to happen is, you know, most of the birds that are, are essentially moving south into the Pacific Flyway in the fall the Klamath Basin is kind of a, a big first stop, if you will. And because both refuges are dry, Tule Lake and Lower Klamath refuges are dry, that, that doesn't provide any opportunities to stop. So we expect that migration will be accelerated into the Central Valley this year. Um, and we saw some of that last year. Unfortunately, I think the Central Valley is going to be a very, very dry place, at least in early fall, because of the lack of winter-flooded rice uh, and the restrictions on water for public and private wetlands. So those birds that are coming through the Klamath Basin quicker than they otherwise would have are going to encounter a pretty dry Central Valley, if you will. But, um, you know, we have had droughts before, but to be honest with you, we're not, really, we're not all that aware of maybe how the birds react to those droughts. So we're trying to learn a little bit that year, this year, and we're doing two things. We are, we're coordinating surveys um, over a pretty large part of the flyway in the Klamath Basin, south of there and into the Central Valley, trying to do that on a two-week basis, two-week to monthly basis, to, to understand how the birds are distributing themselves in the face of this drought. Where are they ending up, if you will? The other thing we're planning on doing, working with with our partners, USGS and others, is to uh, try and put about 160 satellite transmitters on on waterfowl, 80 ducks and 80 geese, and to really better understand, hey, how are they reacting to these very, very dry conditions? And our, our, our hope is that we'll kind of shed some light on things, how these birds are dealing with the drought, and we suspect there'll be some conservation implications come out of that. So we're, we are taking an opportunity here to learn how the birds are reacting to drought because it's become more and more of a frequent event, and we have to we have to know how the birds are dealing with it.
3: Yeah, when we get a landscape that that's going to have... Uh, apparently, going to have so little water, you know, unless things change. You also had to start wondering, worrying about things like disease when you have high densities of waterfowl. Uh, when was the last time we had a disease, significant disease outbreak there in California? Do you remember? I, I, I seem to recall that there was a time where it wasn't unusual to have them you know, every few years. Am I wrong about that?
4: We, well, you, know, <laughs> you know, disease, botulism in particular, has always been an out, has always been a concern in the Klamath Basin. We saw some of that last year. Um, in the Central Valley, I don't think we've had an outbreak, Mike, for several years because we've actually had a lot. we actually had a lot of surface water out there over the last twenty or thirty years. A lot of that is due to winter flooded rice, so we've been able to spread the birds out. So I, we're some years, I think, from our last serious outbreak in the Central Valley. Now that, of course, could change this year because it's a very different picture.
3: I may be thinking about, yeah, 30, 40, even even farther ago than than that, now that you say all that. But uh, the other thing that I realize is that I have to correct myself. I think I referred to the agency out there, the state agency, as the California Department of Fish and Game. I think that was their old name. I think they're now the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Is that right?
4: I believe it is, yes.
3: Yeah. So my, my apologies for using that old name. Jeff, I wanna to go to you now and talk about kind of the big question that we get a lot of is what is Ducks Unlimited doing in response to this? Have we changed anything? Uh how are we how are we fixing the pro how are we fixing the problem? Talk to us about some of that, Jeff, in terms of our priorities, whether they have changed in response to like this the the urgency, the, the extremeness of this drought. Uh, what is Ducks Unlimited doing in response to all this? And that's a great question, Mike. And I think a little perspective for some of the listeners is 85 years ago,
1: this year, Ducks Unlimited was founded in the midst of a terrible drought, the Dust Bowl days of 1937. And <clears throat> we've maintained the course of focusing on habitat and setting the table for when the rains come again so the birds can sur- can respond to better habitat conditions. Without that table being set, doesn't really matter what we do. And that's true today, as it was 85 years ago. And what that looks like might be a little bit different, but the priorities are still the same. Focus on habitat, set the table, wait for the rains to return, and the birds will respond. What that looks like this year is uh, we've got multiple activities going on, um, actually. And uh, we've signed multiple contracts with the Department of Fish and Wildlife to do water efficiency projects on multiple wildlife areas across the Central Valley. We recently announced the receipt of a 2.6, almost $2.7 million grant for work on the Klamath Basin, specifically with Lower Klamath National Wildlife Refuge and the Klamath Drainage District and the Thule Lake National Wildlife Refuge and the Thule Lake Irrigation District. And those projects are also going to be looking at water use efficiency, as well as irrigation, tailwater reuse and recirculation within those districts and those national wildlife refuges. And I think one point on why we're talking water efficiency and water supply and pumps is that water is supplied to most wildlife areas and most waterfowl habitat within the three big landscapes of Great Salt Lake, Klamath Basin, Sonic, and the Central Valley, right? So somebody makes a decision on whether that piece of waterfowl habitat is gonna have water. It's from it's from behind a dam, it goes through a canal, you turn on a pump, you open up a gate and so forth. And so having this kind of irrigation type of infrastructure and And having that be as efficient as possible for wetland management is 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 actually really critical to providing high quality habitat uh, wherever it may be. And another example of that is our finishing up of the Grey Lodge water supply project with the Biggs West Gridley Irrigation District, the Bureau of Reclamation, the California Natural Resources Agency, where DU is helping to rebuild the lower half of the Biggs West Gridley Irrigation District water supply system that feeds Grey Lodge Wildlife Area its water supply. And our last phase of of this multi-year construction project is going to happen this winter. The good thing is, is that it's not raining, so the dry conditions are allowing us to finish ahead of schedule. The bad news is, is that there's no water. <laughs> there might not be much water to fill this irrigation system back up when it's uh when it's done. Um, but essentially that's setting the table for when conditions are good. And one other late-breaking thing that is going to happen this year is we've got some supplemental. Uh, groundwater pumping that we're going to be able to do in aquifers that are that are not stressed. And the Department of Water Resources here in California is supplying uh, several million dollars to incentivize rice growers and wetland managers to uh, use their water to supply early water in the season. So this is talking um, beginning of the season, so mid-October, And hold that water through uh, the spring to supplement what's not being made available from behind those dams or through those canals.
3: Jeff, we were out there a few weeks ago looking at some of those projects, examples of some of those projects, those water efficiency projects. And they're not, uh, you know, as the saying goes, they're not your granddad's Ducks Unlimited project uh, necessarily. They are, we're in a new era. Water is an incredibly precious commodity out there in the Western U.S., especially in times like this. And so those, let's say, non-traditional type of projects that DU is investing in now are designed, as you said, to position us to be efficient Every year, so that we can make the most of the limited water that's out there, and hopefully ensure that waterfowl and wetlands and all the other critters that depend on it from those habitats uh, is going to get their fair share. Is it is it that simple? Is that kind of what we're what we're targeting with those new types of projects?
1: Uh, yeah, I'd say so, and I think uh, another way to frame it is uh, this term that's that we're being used now to describe these types of activities is multi beneficial. And when I mentioned earlier about water flows where it's legally mandated to flow, so how do we kind of flip that around on its head? How do we play judo with that saying and make that water flow towards wetlands to support waterfowl? And if we can design a project that provides multiple benefits for every drop of water so how does that how does that drop of water that comes through that canal get used does it get used for people does it get used for endangered species does it get used for agriculture does it get used for wetlands and waterfowl and if it can do all of those things the chances of that water making it to that that wetland or that piece of waterfowl habitat is much greater than if it was only for those things and so we're looking for those opportunities where we can provide multiple benefits to ensure a more reliable and more sustainable water supply for those habitats that are critical for waterfowl in the central valley in particular and and i think one thing to note about what the uh Sustainability of that water supply means is that with with the essentially the drought that's happening in the Shasta, Lake Shasta watershed. So um the west side of the river in the Sacramento Valley, there's almost zero rice being planted. And that's because um the, the water's not there. But at the same time, the reliance on waterfowl is tremendous on rice. Rice is the environmental crop, it supports half of the energetics for wintering birds. And what the real threat is, is not necessarily uh, the long-term of the drought itself, but actually the the potential for the rice industry to collapse and to crumble. Right now there's 14,000 jobs within the rice industry that are lost this year. Rice mills had to lay off people, chemical suppliers, seed suppliers, truck drivers, harvesters, all of that industry that supports um, the rice crop from getting from the field to the bag of rice in the grocery store. That's in danger of collapsing. And if that collapses, how can we how can a farmer grow rice? So the existential threat is not only just this lack of water from the drought, but it's the potential collapse of the agricultural industry that supports the rice crop. So how do we make that drop, go to rice, go to wetlands, and provide multiple benefits for people, for waterfowl, and for others?
3: Jeff, as I listen to this and think back to how we started this episode—the Great Salt Lake dropping to lowest levels on records, no water in in uh, Lower Klamath and Tule Lake National Wildlife Refuges, uh, just incredibly low levels of rice produced in the Central Valley—it's—it's it's not too difficult to to get a bit depressed and start thinking gloom and doom, but we don't need to go there and we need to stay away from there to the best that we can. You are our director of operations for the Western region. One of your, one of your primary responsibilities and, and jobs there is as I see it to kind of maintain, inspire that confidence and optimism as we look forward, not necessarily to view things as how bad they are, but what are the opportunities that we have before us to, to, to battle these conditions that we have and, and make for a brighter future. What's your elevator speech in that regard to keep people inspired and confident and try to find the good uh, in in the situation that we, that we find ourselves in.
1: Yeah. The, the, the amazing thing about duck hunters, about waterfowl enthusiasts, wetland conservationists like Ducks Unlimited is that we have our roots firmly planted in recovering from drought. And it's, It's a natural cycle, and when drought comes, it's time to step on the gas for conservation. And the more that waterfowlers can band together and to support the important habitat work that we have going on, that we have going on right now, that we're planning to do, that's what's going to make us through this drought is setting this table, getting these projects on the ground. There's unprecedented amount of public money that's available. We've all seen the, the new bills that have been passed in Congress and in, and in California, and we're trying to take every opportunity to access those funds, put shovel-ready projects on the ground, And set that table for when for when the time is right and the rains come and the birds can respond. But now is not a time to sit back and think about how bad it is. Yes, it's a reality check. We have to be aware of it. But at the same time, that's a strong motivator for our conservation teams, our biologists, our engineers, to double their efforts, get out there, get these projects done, get the next grant in, get that money, and repeat and that's exactly what we're doing but we need everybody's help to be able to do this it's unprecedented times that means we all got to band together for the birds
3: jeff i really appreciate that perspective and it does provide some inspiration i want to go a little bit farther here you mentioned it right at the end we need people to band together and 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 stay engaged and take action i want you to try to identify some specific things that people can do to help it's not just that you know duck's unlimited is out here doing this by itself i mean duck's unlimited is it's, we exist because of the people that support us. Without that, we don't exist. And so, you know, obviously, the first thing whenever I ask somebody this question, like, what do you want people to do? Well, number one is to become a member of and supporter and donor to Ducks Unlimited. So let's let's just kind of take that as an understood, right? And in this conversation, but but then kind of beyond that, what can people do? What do we need people to do to make a difference? Help make a difference in this situation.
1: Well, Mike, I think that certainly becoming a member of Ducks Unlimited and renewing your member, coming your membership and and coming to your local dinner is is something that uh, we shouldn't take for granted because it makes an effort uh, for everybody to to be able to do that. But staying engaged and staying informed is perhaps the biggest thing that all of us can do as a community. And when the times are tough and the call comes out from Ducks Unlimited to support, the North American Wetland Conservation Act or to support certain legislation that's going to be important for maintaining uh, important waterfowl habitats, whether that's agricultural or whether it's natural wetlands. We all need to be a uh, lookout for those because our added voice, our collected voice, the 700,000 or so members of Ducks Unlimited, when we speak, politicians listen. And that is the power that we bring as a as a community to these hard times.
3: I think that's a great place to wrap this up, Jeff. Uh, we're going to have. Uh, we're going to have uh, Virginia Getz on, at least I think the plan is to have her on a little bit later on. I think she's planning to be here at national headquarters, and we'll have her sit down with us in the studio and give us an update on how things are in the Central Valley and, and other places out west. I know she's going to have some great personal insight uh, by that time. But before we close out, uh, anything else from uh, Mark, I'll go to you first. Anything else that we didn't touch here that you want to make sure we cover? I think your questions were
4: right on and I think explored all the important aspects of the drought, both from a waterfowl and a hunter standpoint.
3: And Jeff, any any final words from you?
1: Yeah, I think the the only thing to think about is that uh, birds don't magically appear here. They don't magically appear in front of a duck blind. Uh, There's a whole community of people, Ducks Unlimited members, Ducks Unlimited staff, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the area managers. We're all working hard to make this rough year as best that we can for the birds and so when you're out there enjoying the season you know say thank you for all the hard work that everybody's been doing to try and make it possible for us to get out there and and do the thing that we like to do when winter comes.
3: Jeff, Mark, thank you guys for joining us here yet again to discuss this really important issue and I'm sure it won't be the last time we talk about it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for all the great work that y'all are doing out there.
1: Thanks Mike. Thank you Mike.
3: A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Jeff McCreary and Dr. Mark Petrie. We appreciate their time and all the hard work they do out there in the western region for Ducks Unlimited and and all all the critters that depend on the work that we do. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the terrific job that he does getting these episodes edited and out to you. And then to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your support. We encourage you to review and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And we thank you for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation.